My name's Clint Humphrey, and I'm going to be teaching this Sunday school class this morning. And you should have got a handout when you came in. If you, if you didn't, there, you can just pop out into the foyer and grab one. And we're going to be going through this. We've been going through a series on global Christianity. And uh, in that process, uh, it was suggested to me, well, what about Canada? Uh, as one of, the, one of the challenges here in Canada is that very few of us actually know anything of our history, and very few of us are aware of what is the state of churches, the state of Christianity in Canada today. What are the needs in Canada? Is Canada a Christian nation, or is Canada maybe one of the more, uh, or what I should say, one of the, the less reached of even, you could say, the G7 countries? So as we get settled, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to look at a text of Scripture. But uh, join me now as we pray together. Almighty God, as we come before you this morning, we ask that your mercy would be upon us. You've given us even the blessing of this beautiful day, but also the blessing of being able to gather here freely, to be able to hear your word. What a privilege. We thank you for all these blessings that we enjoy in this nation of Canada. We pray that as we consider this country and all your works that you have done here, we ask, Lord, that you would instruct us, but most of all, cause us to have a renewed faith or even a new faith in you and your ability to convert people, to remove hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, to cause people to believe in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead, who is reigning right now and who will return to judge the living and the dead. So we pray that you would help us to worship Jesus Christ and be ambassadors for him even as we're motivated by looking at the lay of the land, even this land of Canada. So meet us now, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 and verse 8. And if, I mean, you've got a Bible there. You've also got the verse if you've got your hand out. And you will see... In my Bible, the ESV says this, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, that verse became quite prominent even in Canada's own parliamentary buildings. So a number of years ago, I was with a group of pastors and we were meeting in Ottawa to discuss the possibility of having a ministry that would combine Christians from different denominations trying to work together in a coalition to advance the gospel. And the name of it became the Gospel Coalition in Canada. 
But we met in Ottawa, and one of the things we got to do was we had a, a tour through the parliamentary buildings. And if you've been there, if you've been to Ottawa, to the Parliament buildings, you'll know that there's the tall central Peace Tower, it's called. The Peace Tower. And you go up the stairs, and there's a room up at the top of the Peace Tower, and in it is, as it's really an altar, but there's this, this, this altar-looking thing, and it's dedicated to the soldiers who have died in defense of freedom, the freedom of our country. But around the edge of this table is Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, it is something to consider that If you think about Canada, you might have a perception of it being a Christian nation, or you might have a perception of it being anything but a Christian nation. But one thing that has been forgotten by most of our media and most of our teachers and most of our politicians is that Canada was founded with an awareness of the Bible, with an awareness of the traditions that derive from the Bible, with the moral ethics that derive from the Bible, such as the Ten Commandments, and with an awareness of the claims of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That has always been there. One of the things, though, even in the Parliament, and you read the history about it a little bit, is even when these guys were putting up these verses, and there's a few of them throughout the Parliament buildings, there's a few references that way, they're always quite careful. They didn't want to be too explicit about evangelical faith or Christian faith. So even at the beginning, there's all this, always this reticence to be too preachy. And, and I think we see that then throughout our society where there's this reticence to be very explicit about Christian faith in our institutions. However, on the other hand, many new immigrants, when they come to Canada, if they come, particularly, for example, if they come from a Muslim country or they come from maybe coming from India, predominantly Hindu country, they come to Canada and because... There is this Christian heritage, and there is this, this freedom for Christians to, to worship and flourish. They assume it is more of a Christian country. And I've heard many stories about people who come, and then they're surprised with how all these people in Canada act. Is this how Christians act? Of course, they, you know, they're encountering people who aren't Christians. Uh, but they assume that these folks are Christians. So sometimes there's a, there's a difference between what is perceived and the reality. Now I want to go a little bit through some of the history of Christian faith in Canada and just hit a few regions here, and you've got it in your outline there. We'll go through the history and then that will help us to get to what is the reality. Not just the perception, but the reality today. I'm going to start in Quebec. Quebec, of course, as a French colony, 
was dominated by Roman Catholicism. It had Jesuit missionaries. It was a Roman Catholic colony. One of the things that happened, though, after World War II is what was called the, the Quiet Revolution. The Quiet Revolution. If you know anything about our Prime Minister's father, not Justin Trudeau, but Pierre Trudeau, you will know that he came to power following this quiet revolution. And what was the quiet revolution? It was essentially a rejection of the Roman Catholic Church as the dominant influence in Quebec. And instead, it was replaced with secularism. So everything was secular. So that today, Quebec is even probably the the greatest leader in secular thought in Canada. And that's through its institutions, its schools, all the way along. Now, Roman Catholicism still has pride of place as far as religious belief in Quebec, but it has collapsed in terms of, of, of Roman Catholics. Now, what you probably don't know, unless you're from Quebec, what you probably don't know is that in the 1970s, there was a revival in Quebec, like a tr- true blue ribbon revival, where masses of young people got saved. They're all young, young you know, like in their 20s, kind of like kind of hippies, post-hippies, you know, whatever group came after the hippies. And I know one of them, one of them was a friend of mine, he, I taught at the seminary with him, and he got converted in that revival, and he talked about him and his brother, they were weed-smoking hippies, they were, you know, they were bad dudes, but they came to faith in Christ, and both he and his brother then became pastors. And so there was all of then these small Baptist churches that got planted from that revival. So that today, if you go to a Baptist church in Quebec, chances are the theology is going to be great. They're going to be very committed to discipleship. And they will be extra committed to evangelism. Now, there's still not many of them. But there didn't exist any before that. And so to recognize that. And I have friends in Quebec now who, you know, they're solid guys and they pastor these churches, some of which, uh, there's a, one friend of mine is a pastor in Montreal. His church would probably be uh, bigger than our church, probably, you know, maybe four or 500 people. And just a solid ministry that any of us would want to participate in. So that's, that's maybe a little bit of the lay of the land in Quebec. In Ontario, uh, and again, I'm just picking and choosing here. In Ontario, in Toronto, we won't talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs. We'll leave that off, those poor Leaf fans. Although we might be crying here if you're a Flames fan. The Oilers guys are all feeling lovely this morning, but we won't give them too much airtime here. Um, But Toronto used to have a nickname, not just Hogtown, because that's where you bring your hogs to slaughter, um, you can tell your friends that uh, Toronto's Hogtown. But it was called Toronto the Good. Toronto the Good. And the reason why it was Toronto the Good was because Methodism had so influenced Toronto that it, it, the, the mass of the population belonged to the Methodist Church. Now, can anybody tell me who's the main figure 
related to what became known as Methodism. So let me just shout out his name. John Wesley. John Wesley, yes. John Wesley. So Wesley was an Anglican. An Anglican is, uh, you know, this is another way of saying someone who belonged to the state church in England, the Church of England. And Wesley was an Anglican. But then he broke with, I mean, his movement, I should say, broke with the Anglican church because then it employed these diligent methods, spiritual disciplines of holiness. And that's where the name Methodism came. Because they were, these guys were methodical, they, they, were, they prayed, they sang, they studied the Bible, and they heralded the gospel. Now, the movement of Methodism really spread in Canada. And that's why I say Toronto was dominated by that. Um, what happened, though, was that in the late 1800s, this Methodism became the establishment. Um, there's a, even just a recent news story of showing the establishment of it where it's kind of changed now. But does anybody, did anybody hear about the story about a Ryerson University changing its name? Is anybody familiar with that? You know, Ryerson? Anybody, anybody here a Ryerson grad? No. Uh, but anyways, I used to, when I was teaching, we lived near Ryerson. But Ryerson, the name Ryerson is named after uh, Edgerton Ryerson. And he was a Methodist who actually started the separate school system, basically the public school system in Ontario. But Ryerson just changed its name because Ryerson was also involved in the philosophy behind the residential schools on native reserves. And because of that, because of his, his uh, kind of intellectual work and kind of thinking about how to set that up, then uh, now that university is ashamed of him and they've removed his statue and they just changed the name, I think, to the Metropolitan University. But, but that's, Methodism was dominant there and now Toronto has moved quite away from what I think even back then would have been an Arminian but evangelical Methodism. In Ontario and in, in kind of the GTA, the Golden Horseshoe, if you're familiar with southern Ontario and its dense population, after World War II, it had lots of immigration. And as it had more immigration, what you would have would be then Churches that speak a different language other than English, they would be established. So then you had Mandarin-speaking churches. Or you had uh, churches where they're preaching in Tamil. Uh, I just got an email this last week from, uh, remember Pastor Mano that we used to know um, in Toronto, from Sri Lanka. And he pastored a Tamil-speaking church. And then what happened, though, you'd have these churches established speaking a different language other than English, ministering to people who are new immigrants. But then, then you'd have a shift. So you have all these churches start, but then you have a shift, and then there's a second generation, and most often the kids, well, they speak English. Some of them don't even know their parents' language anymore, hardly. And then, then there'd be a tension, and by the third generation, it would no longer then belong to that distinct language group, and they would have the test of whether or not they're going to survive and thrive as an English-speaking church that 
appeals to all, not just their own ethnic group. So that's what happened in Toronto and in, in Ontario and many of the major centers. But at the same time, you also had the decline of what I call the legacy churches. The legacy churches are the churches that were established since the late 1800s through the early between the world wars. Those legacy churches have been in decline. And I'll give you an example of, that, of a legacy church in decline is right where you're sitting. This, this was... You know, we, we, we didn't build this church. <laughs> this, this church was built by the Lutherans. But the Lutheran denomination and church, the, the congregation that was here was 100 years old. It's a legacy church, but what they lost after having been ethnically German, over time they lost the gospel. They lost the theology. They lost orthodoxy. And then they gradually declined as a thriving church, and remained only a preserve, almost like a culture club, for that ethnicity. In this case, it was Volga Germans. And that's what you have in Toronto throughout. So you've got these big, beautiful buildings in downtown Toronto, of these legacy churches, and there's hardly anybody sitting in them. Um, so, so that's what's happened. And that's, although it's happened there, it's happened across Canada. Now, think about the prairies. And this is where I even know more intimately. Uh, in the prairies and here, what you had happen, like, you know, in the late 1800s, would you have had all these tall buildings here in Calgary? No. The late 1800s, what would you have on Stephen Avenue? You maybe start getting some of those standstone ones starting to be built. But, but you know, the 1880s, Calgary was tense. Like it was, it was shacks. It was like nothing here. And, you know, of course, they did move downtown a couple of times, you know, because well, you put the tent by the river and then the river floods you, right? And then you, you were still getting flooded. But what happened then was these churches that got established as Calgary was just getting started, and you think Calgary, late 1800s, just getting started, the churches that were established just happened to be established at a time when in Britain and in the U.S. and in Canada, all of the major denominations were threatened with theological liberalism. So I'll give an example, and, and uh, I can speak to this, I've thought about it quite a bit. Over downtown, or just south of downtown on 4th Avenue, is that big Gothic building, that church, you've seen it, First Baptist. Now, First Baptist, if you go there, I mean, maybe you can go listen to Norm Dirksen. His sermon might be better than mine. But, uh, but anyways, Norm's a good guy. He's there kind of doing a renewal work. But you go there and you see there'll be a plaque on the corner of that building at First Baptist. And the, and the guy on the plaque of that building was the head of the Baptist World Alliance, this this in, this global connection of Baptists across the world, across the British Empire, really. And he was there with his name, this fella, on the cornerstone at First Baptist when they built that big building. The problem is that guy, this individual, and now his name slips me right now, but he was a modernist. He was a, well, he was a liberal. He was a, he was a theological compromiser. 
He was really good at being kind and cordial and a great organizer, but he was theologically weak. And that's actually what happened. You had the churches, the very foundation of the legacy denominations in Western Canada were established at a time when their own denominations were starting to go down. Now, what do I mean by theological liberalism? Well, they started denying the virgin birth of Christ. They started denying the need for people to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. They started to affirm that all people are going to heaven. They just don't know it yet. Uh, You know, things like that. They started to deny that the Bible was completely inerrant. And that's, those, those errors are what became known as modernism. And now, you can look at the denominations, uh, even churches in the city here, that are still very much committed to that modernism. So, for example, uh, you could go to Knox United Church downtown, and actually there's folks here, even in this room, that I know have, have been, there, been at that, that place uh, a long time ago. Well, Knox... I know with uh, quite a sense, my son's name is Knox. Knox, well, you you know a church that's named Knox, it must be originally what? Presbyterian, because John Knox, Scottish Presbyterian. Well, what happened was the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Congregationalists, at the turn of the century, they all started to move in this modernist direction. And so then they had this big meeting and they decided let's all band together and become what's known as the United Church. And that church then in embracing modernism continued down a liberal path so that in my view, the United Church is a false church and it does not preach the gospel. Um, The buildings are still there, the endowments keep them going. But there are false churches. Now, there were breakaways. The Free Methodists didn't join. The Presbyterian Church in Canada didn't join. But sadly, even those legacy denominations, they've actually declined since as well. So that's what you had happen. And so, even though there's a wonderful legacy of Methodist missionaries in Western Canada... Normally, where those Methodist churches were established, they're united churches. I'll give you another quick example. Uh, the church burned down here a number of years ago, but if you went out to Morley, to the Stony Reserve out there, uh, you would know about the Morley Mission that was a Methodist mission from the McDougals, John and George McDougals. John and George McDougal, who had, I mean, even their the McDougal name is throughout Calgary on streets and schools and parks and things. But these guys came as pioneer missionaries seeking to evangelize largely the stony peoples who are sometimes understood as the Mountain Cree and the Cree Confederacy, the Iron Confederacy in central and northern Alberta and in Saskatchewan. So they came and did this evangelism. They participated in Treaty 7. Pioneer missionaries. As some of you have read, I've written about it. Uh, there was a, a, a native chief named Muskipatoon, a, a Cree chief from be up near uh, 
be southeast of Edmonton. Uh, he, was, he was a convert to Christianity before Canada's confederation. So there's a long history of evangelical faith in Canada, even among indigenous peoples, long before, like, for example, my family came to Canada. Uh, so, so just to kind of recognize, put things in perspective. But sadly, because the Methodists were, they were really good at wanting to get people converted, but they were really weak on theology and discipleship. And that's why then all the Methodists, for the most part, it got swept away with this theological liberalism. So if you find a united church, very often it used to be a Methodist church, but you see the sad legacy of this modernism that took over. So that's kind of what happened out here. Uh, as well, as I mentioned about Ontario, the same thing happened out here. You had these ethnic evangelical churches. So you had uh, the Mennonite Brethren. And I know there's folks here have their Mennonite Brethren background. Or you had the Swedish Baptists. The Swedish Baptists, for example, I know down in Okotoks, the Swedish Baptist Church, it became the Evangelical Free Church. And so if you have any of that background, that's a church that my wife and I attended, uh, that's their roots. I'm not Swedish, but that was their, that church's roots. Or the German Baptists. Uh, the German Baptists, if you just go down Memorial, up, to, up across Deerfoot to Grace Baptist, Grace Baptist Church, that's originally a German Baptist church, but it's part of what's now called the North American Baptist. Of course, they dropped the German name, right? Because there, lots of folks aren't German anymore. Most of the churches don't even have a German service anymore. German Baptist. And of course, probably for many here, the background of the Dutch reform. So Dutch immigration uh, to Ontario, to Western Canada, and then the Dutch Reformed Church, which changed its name to the Christian Reformed Church because they're thinking, well, you know, it's not just for Dutch people. We don't just speak Dutch. And of course, then there's also been many, many splits as the Dutch Reformed and Christian Reformed Church has gradually descended into that modernism as well. And so when you find these Christian Reformed churches, you've got to be very careful and see whether or not they're actually teaching what is biblically orthodox. So the names change, but all of them have had difficulty maintaining orthodoxy. Um, last, I'll just mention, because everybody's talking about these days, is evangelicals in politics in Alberta and in the prairies. Because there's been lots of that. We used to, the, our church used to meet across the river in the Alexandra Center, it's called. If some of you old-timers are, you remember that. Well, that used to be the Alexandra School, and the principal of the Alexandra School was a guy named William Aberhart. And if you know, probably you don't actually, nobody really knows Alberta history anymore, but he was called Bible Bill Aberhart, and he, was the prem, he became the premier of Alberta. One of the reasons if you're in the oil business and you think, well, why, why does the province of Alberta have the rights to the oil rather than the federal government have the rights to the oil? Well, it's because of Bible Bill Aberhart, because he entrenched those rights as provincial rights rather than federal rights. So Bible Bill, he was there. The trouble with Bible Bill was 
as he got more and more into politics, it seemed he moved further and further away from more orthodox evangelical teachings. Following after him was Ernest Manning, who was another premier of Alberta. Ernest Manning was premier for 25 years, but he himself also was a disciple of Eberhardt. He had taught on the Back to the Bible Hour broadcast, and he was an evangelical Christian. So very, very influential. You might even know his son, Preston Manning, whose even his name is kind of passed off the scene. Um, you can get Preston Manning's recent book, though. It's quite good as far as thinking about Christian engagement with politics. But another famous one is Tommy Douglas, not from Alberta, but from Saskatchewan. And Tommy Douglas was a, of a different type. He actually was in a Baptist church that was moving toward modernism. And Tommy Douglas, he actually got, I would say, frustrated with the churches that dealing with spiritual needs, in his view, was not enough. And so he wanted social action. And so then he became a social organizer during the Great Depression and beyond. And he basically introduced socialism into Canadian politics and is the founder of, of kind of the socialist structures, even including our, uh, your, your uh, universal health care uh, paid by tax dollars. So that's from Tommy Douglas. He always prided himself on being a Baptist minister, but in, if you look at his views as time went on, they weren't very evangelical. So that's the prairies. I'll jump out to the two coasts, the Maritimes, very quickly. Uh, the Maritimes were influenced by the Second Great Awakening. Because of that older history, the 1700s, when there was revival in the northeastern U.S. It actually included the Maritimes as well. But same thing, the 20th century modernism corrupted those legacy denominations. I'll jump to B.C. if some of you are familiar with things in British Columbia. There's all these much more of these British roots, especially you think of a place like Victoria. It's like being, you know, in a little piece of England uh, when you're in Victoria. So there was a lot of Anglicanism. One of the one of the probably most well-known Anglicans in Canada uh, who's gone to be with the Lord now is a guy named J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer taught in Vancouver for many years at Regent College, and he was part of, a, of an Anglican church there called St. John Shaughnessy. Now, St. John Shaughnessy was in the news a number of years ago because they came down clearly in saying they will not support same-sex marriages, and they will not support clergy that are performing same-sex marriages. They said it's against the Bible. It's against the historic Christian faith. It's against what the Church of England, what Anglicanism has taught since the Reformation. And as a result, they had to leave their nice, beautiful building and go meet in a school. And they became the first of a number of churches. And I actually know, I, I don't know the St. John Shaughnessy guys as well, but there's a, a pastor in Ottawa and then another pastor in Burlington. And both those guys followed right after. And they left all their beautiful Gothic buildings because the gospel was more important than those buildings. And so they left the Anglican church in Canada, which is, I would say, is hope is is completely off the rails 
and they join now the Anglican renewal movement, sometimes known as ANIC, the Anglican network in, in, uh, in Canada. So that's what you have there. Uh, many of you know of the Mennonites in Abbotsford. Uh, Mennonites in Abbotsford is maybe like Mennonites in Steinbeck. There's just lots of Mennonites there. So you have Mennonite immigration. Well, it changes then the nature of the churches there. Trinity Western University is a good example in Langley of a Christian institution uh, driven mostly by Evangelical Free Church. And you've known their court battles as they, as they have tried to establish a law school as they have tried to gain acceptance, but because of their Christian code of conduct, then they've been viewed as being discriminatory, and they've had to go to the Supreme Court, and they've had some wins, but mostly losses. And now, it seems, at least in my view, that Trinity Western is backing off of their, their demands for that code of conduct and, and kind of sticking with that. So I, I feel that there's kind of a, a retreat there a little bit. But... In British Columbia, especially in the denominations, you see the rapid secularization that's affecting churches. And so it's really tough. The churches are struggling because they're wanting to be accepted by, they want to have a place to be in the world and be able to share the gospel. But in that acceptance, they end up being more worldly. So the reality then is that we see a secular religion being overlaid across the nation. It is a belief system. And that then is in competition with Christian faith. Now what do we do then? Do we just shake our fist and decry, oh well, this secular religion is so bad. Well, yeah, it is bad, but what do we need to do? We need to pray and plant and work and build. And so there actually is evidence of that you see here in Calgary. In Calgary, there's been renewal in Calgary where now the good churches in Calgary have only been planted, in my view, in the last decade or so. It's not the legacy churches of 100 years or 50 years. It's the churches just of the last 10 years. And they're solid, they're orthodox. They might do things differently than us, but you could send somebody there and they'll preach the gospel. People will perceive that Alberta and Calgary is the buckle on the Bible belt, and I say, no, it's not. We're a secular city. And what's happened in Calgary in particular, even different than Edmonton, I would say, although it's, there is evidence of this in Edmonton as well, and in the other, in Red Deer, and to a lesser extent, Lethbridge, is that the big box churches, and I don't mean to be too hard on them, but the big box churches that were part of what was called the seeker-sensitive movement, they offered all these programs for everybody's felt needs, and they, they tried to draw Christians from all these little churches. And so they grew from that. The result was, though, all of these little churches then, they were left to dry up and die when those little churches probably were more sustainable. And so our friends over at Center Street or at First Alliance or some of these churches... I don't know how they're going to stay orthodox in the next 10 years because their trends are not looking very promising. Now, maybe things can get turned around, but the result is, though, is that you have churches that then they've kind of they've gutted everybody else, left everybody else weak, and meanwhile, as a big block, then they can descend into liberalism. 
So that's why there's a need for more church plants, which you maybe wouldn't think in the buckle on the Bible belt, as people say. It's like, no, we need church planters. We need more guys. We need, we need more here. Last little overview. This is across Canada is the movement of Pentecostalism. Many of you will remember, well, actually, you're so many are so young, you might not, but there was a thing called the Toronto Blessing. Who's, who's heard of the Toronto Blessing? Yeah, okay, so a few of you have heard of it. Well, that was an international phenomenon, and it was this view of this revival. There's all kinds of crazy phenomenon that was happening there, crazy stuff happening. The doctrinal teaching was really, really bad, but it got a lot of publicity. And so you have lots of aberrant teaching. And this has all been very different than even the older Pentecostalism that you even had in Western Canada, for example, that was Christ-centered, and committed to holiness and was Trinitarian. I mean, there you had that. And, and so I remember, I remember being at a camp, speaking at, I was at a camp in Ontario, speaking to a, maybe a college and career event, and the hosts of the camp were Pentecostals. But they were that old kind of Pentecostals. And they were committed to Christ, they were committed to holiness, they are committed to the advance of the gospel. Now, I had big disagreements with them about a bunch of stuff, but I was happy to have fellowship with them about those core things. What about needs in Canada? What about needs? Like if somebody say to you, well, what do you think are the needs in Canada? Well, maybe you say, oh, well, we got to elect our guy for political office. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Fill your boots. Go ahead and vote for him. He, you know, <laughs> ain't going to do much. I mean, I mean, I engage in the political process. There's lots of pastors talking about, oh, yeah, we want to be engaged in politics. Yes, be engaged. Be engaged. Do it. There's actually more to be done than just doing stuff on Twitter and Facebook. Actually get involved in politics. But what are the needs? Well, the need is for people to be converted. And in that section on needs, for example, do you know that in the modern classifications of missions, that Newfoundland would be viewed as an unreached region? It has so few churches so few christians that it is viewed as unreached it was kind of a funny thing when i was at together for the gospel the big mega conference in kentucky there a few weeks ago uh, david platt spoke on missions and he put up this put up this graphic and uh showing all the unreached areas areas uh, around the world and newfoundland and kind of northern Canada, well, it, it was just in gray as if there wasn't enough data. Uh, <laughs> that was what it said. There was not enough data to, to say. There was not enough data because there's, there's nothing there. I've been, I've been to Newfoundland. Steve Bray, who's spoken here, who's going to speak here, maybe looks like either, either coming in July or in the fall. Steve Bray, you know, I've encouraged him and, and we support him in what's called Mile One Mission. Mile one of the Trans-Canada Highway starts in St. John's, Newfoundland. And he's trying to raise money in order to plant churches in Newfoundland because it's unreached. Because, because they're, you know, you, you'd like to go to church. Where do you go? There's no church. But the other thing, the great need to consider is that if mainstream evangelicals aren't orthodox, like if they move, I should say, if they move from being evangelical just like in the late 1800s, 
to being modernist and to being liberal. If they make that move, well, then you're going to have all these churches, big facilities, big buildings throughout this city, throughout Canada, some of the biggest churches in Canada, even here in this city, if they move, then you've got to ask, oh, there actually aren't enough churches really. And even to consider the population of Calgary or the population of Canada and the percentage of churches in relation to the population is extremely tiny. American friends will talk about, oh yeah, well, Maine is so unchurched or the Pacific Northwest is so unchurched. But it's nothing like Canada. Canada, we have nothing compared to those places. People would talk about Tim Keller going to New York City and planting a church in hostile New York City. I had a Quebec pastor tell me once, he visited down there, and he's like, oh, (laughs) New York City? (laughs) There's way more Christians down here. It's way more Christian-friendly down here than in Quebec. So perceptions can, can alter how we actually, what's the reality on the ground. So there actually are probably fewer churches in cities and towns than we assume or will be. Another major problem is that the seeker churches, the big churches, the mega churches, even in Calgary, and you can, you can correct me on any of this if you like, but they don't really plant churches. They'll have a few campuses, but they actually don't plant sustainable churches or have massive church planting movements. They just, they don't. They sustain their own big institutions. And they don't equip pastors. There, there just isn't. There, there should be a whole crop of pastors coming out if these, with all the resources these places have, and they don't. The simple fact is, there aren't many schools in Canada that train pastors and missionaries that, are, that I would say are, are sound and solid. Very few. Some of you are familiar with Ambrose University in town here. I talked to a guy who's in their denomination. He says, we don't send them money anymore. Because the, the stuff they teach is going off the rails. And if, you want, if you've got a different view on that, you come talk to me. Um, so, so it's really tough. Like, where do you find the pastors? That's the crisis. Where do you find the pastors in Canada? Where are they? They're just, they don't exist. And so then this is also then why denominations like the Anglican Church in Canada, partly why they had to open up to women's ordination and have women pastors is because they wouldn't have anybody to staff their churches. So there's great pressure to have women's ordination to fill these slots. But in my view, then women are, are not qualified to be able to biblically qualified to be able to be pastors in these churches, just as many uncalled men are not qualified. The other thing I think that's a it's a very sad legacy is that cross-cultural indigenous missions continues to be affected by short-term thinking. And I, I don't know, do any of you know someone who is a missionary who does church planting work 
on one of the indigenous reserves, even around Calgary. Um, the guys that I know find it really, really difficult, but most of the problem is it's very short-term thinking. People don't think on the long term. They don't think about planting churches. So you'll have churches in Calgary, well, they'll send out a little team, and they'll, they'll go out for a week and feel good about themselves and come back, but there's no real commitment to the difficulties of that ministry. And the sad legacy of both the residential school system, which in my view was a modernist liberal program, where modernizing churches said, well, we don't really want people to be converted. We just want them to be morally nice and morally British or morally, you know, majority Canadian. So we're going to enforce that. And then the government, it got in there and it kind of took over and it was looking for the financial bottom line. Anyways, I got lots of views on the residential schools. You can talk to me about that. But the result was you had poorly trained ministers, poorly trained missionaries, and the legacy of that leaves an awful stench when it comes to the advance of the gospel amongst indigenous communities. So last then is the prayer points. We've got to ask God to raise up pastors. And sadly what happens is if there's no pastors being raised up in Canada, what do these guys do who feel called to ministry? They go to the U.S., and get training there, which is great. So thankful for the American institutions where these guys can get training. But then they could come back, and then what happens? They come back to Canada, they try to get a job, and then, and then you've got churches that, you know, they, they don't want them. They don't want these guys that are well-trained and theologically equipped and eager to... to reform things according to the Word of God. They don't want them. They want somebody who's going to be a manager, who's going to be a bit of an entertainer. They don't want somebody who's got the, got the Word to bring. And so then they come back and they can't even get employment in these legacy churches. And so then, ironically, there's a need for pastors, but there's also no jobs for them. And if you want to ask about it, talk to some of the guys amongst the elders group. We've helped churches. We've talked to churches We've engaged with churches on this, on this front. But there's a need. If we don't have pastors being raised up, then you're all going to be sitting here wondering, okay, well, who's going to preach to us? Who's going to come and bring the Word of God to us? It is a judgment on the land that there are not more pastors raised up. It is a judgment on this land. It's not just the absence of political leadership. That's one thing. But the absence of pastoral leadership is in itself a token of judgment on this nation and on the church in particular, the so-called professing church. This is also then the second prayer point is that Christians in Canada must shift from the mentality they've been taught to have for the last 30, 40, 50 years of being consumers. And they must shift to being servants or there won't be a church left. You know, I mean, it's one thing I really admire about the French, uh, the Quebec Baptist guys. They are always thinking about how they are going to hand on the gospel to the next generation. Because they know if they don't do it, they will dry up and blow away. And I don't think most folks, especially in Western Canada, are thinking like that. They're still thinking, oh, well, you know, who's got the best music? Or, you know, who's, you know, who's, who's in the public, public eye more? 
or you know who what what church has the you know the demographic of people that I like consumeristic interests yeah it's if if that's where going dry up and blow away two more churches have to recognize the mission field in our own cities and towns i mean there's that this is the mission field we have opportunity to share the gospel with people coming from all over the world coming to places like calgary and we could equip them and then send them back actually uh, to, to their own home countries where they know the language, know the culture. We have that great opportunity. And last, we, we need to pray that the government would be stopped in its attempt, all its attempts, to limit churches from carrying out their public mission. Um, if it does attempt to limit us, the Lord will provide and we'll be able to thrive and do what we need to do. But it's proper to pray that the government would would be hindered from trying to ruin the churches as they are. The one thing that's happening, though, if you don't believe the gospel, you're not going to want to associate with some legacy church that's just a social club. So it's actually going to clear out all that deadwood, and all that's going to be left are people who mean business, who are born from above. And so in one sense, there's actually a real purifying that's going on right now in Canada. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I'm going to switch, and then I'm going to ask, I'm just going to get um, three people. If, if you would pray, just, we'll get three, just pray nice and loud, um, and I'll get one, one person who could pray for raising up pastors, someone else just pray for the shift from being consumers to servants, a third to pray just for the mission field here, and then I'll pray for the government to close us. And then after we finish praying, then I'll open it up to questions. But uh, let's just, I'll open in a word of prayer, and then I want three to pray just nice and loud so everybody can hear you, and we'll just have a brief time of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that now as we pray for Canada, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would love our neighbors enough to want them to turn from their sins believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so be, so be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would raise up uh, godly folks who would want to serve you even in the realm of public life and civic life and political life. Uh, we pray that there would be politicians who would work with integrity uh, even for those who are not Christian believers, Lord, we pray that they would have uh, even the, the imprint of conscience upon them and the natural order that you have created and pressed on them so much that they would then see that uh, the Christian faith is a public good and that they would seek for the preservation of churches to be able to worship and not only to worship, but to herald the gospel and to proclaim publicly into the public square the claims of Jesus Christ as King of King and Lord of Lords. Lord, we do thank you for the liberty that we enjoy. We don't need coercion. We don't force people to become Christians. We don't need it to be legislated. But we do ask, Lord, that you would so restrict governments in their attempts to thwart us that we would be able to persuade sinners with the compelling love of Jesus Christ, and that we would be able to do that freely, trusting you for the results. So we pray, Lord, even for the governments of this land, that 
they would see that it is a good thing that we would be able to herald the gospel and to even to be praying for our leaders over us. So Lord, give us wisdom in this, but we do pray that you would protect and preserve your church. Do this, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll open up to a few questions. Uh, and as a lot of this is not, thus saith the Lord, it's just my opinions, my assessments. But certainly, if, if you have questions on it, I'd love to hear them, even corrections. So, yep, Darren. Yeah, so Darren asks about quote-unquote Reformed churches, not necessarily as in Dutch Reformed churches, but churches that are, are Calvinistic or are a simple way of putting it is that there's an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and salvation as opposed to a man-centered view. And there has been a great renewal in Canada of churches wanting to herald even the, the goodness of God in the gospel, the focus on God's sovereignty and salvation, the belief in the total depravity of man, and yet God's gratuity in saving people unconditionally, and the fact that Christ died for his people and actually did something and accomplished their salvation, and that when he then imposes his grace it is of a kind that those who have been chosen before the foundation of the earth they will come to faith in christ and they will persevere well those churches there's been a great renewal as with all movements there's tensions and troubles and one of the things that we find is if we're consumers sometimes some of the consumers have chosen to say oh i like this theological position for a while but then when it goes out of style, then they look for something else. Maybe then it's more of a radical political philosophy. Maybe it's more of a, uh, an, a trying to be accepted by elites and the establishment of the, of the land. That's what happened certainly in the early 1900s. The churches said, we have to have a gospel for modern man. And so they started to adapt their message to be acceptable to modern scientific man. And so they dropped the miracles. They stopped believing in the miracles. But I'm quite hopeful for this, this movement. And when I said those, the churches of ten, the last 10 years, most of those are what you would call then those Reformed churches, I'd call them too. Um, not necessarily Dutch Reformed, but just this broadly big God theology churches. And they're all doing pretty good. Healthy churches before the pandemic are still healthy. Churches that weren't healthy before the pandemic, all the last two years, it's just exposed all that, and they're all having lots of troubles. Some of the churches where guys were very aggressive in their, their viewpoints, whether in support of the government measures or against the government measures, are actually experiencing now a lot of, I'll call them growing pains or difficulties, because now that some of those things have have lessened or they're just not on the radar as much they're actually facing just the real tensions of church and you got diverse people who don't believe the same stuff and they're wanting to pull it in different directions so that's kind of the state of things there but i'm very encouraged by the hope of those churches i'm not very encouraged 
by what I see in the legacy denominations. And I see that they say they're evangelical today. I don't think they will be. Maybe five, ten years they won't be anymore. So hopefully that helps. One or two more quick. DJ? Yep. Yeah, so, so just for everybody, make sure everybody heard. Uh, in contrast to the megachurches, and if, if there's continued government encroachment, do you have then these house churches as a response? Or what, what's going to happen with the smaller churches? Well, that's certainly a, a possibility, the house church thing. I actually think, having been to China, I still feel it's, it's the model that I look to. And they have house churches that are like 1,000 people. But what they do is, then they'll have an individual who is a private business owner, and he will own the building, and you meet at his building. And so then there's, there's ways, we can think that we, we're go, we'll go from open freely like this to then suddenly not being able to do anything. Well, there's lots of increments between that, and I think we just have to be creative about our meetings. I think we have to exercise all the rights that we enjoy and and, and, and to fight for those rights, uh, you know, I mean, City of Calgary could rezone this church and say, oh, well, you can't have a church here anymore and, you know, kind of force us to sell. But even if it did that, well, then, you know, maybe we'd be able to sell and we'll go somewhere else and we'll meet in a different, different facility. So it's a lot of adaptability. It's not convenient. Uh, the, the, the convenience will end. And churches based on convenience will end. But... But the truth can go forth. I also think churches have to think a lot more about being self-sustaining in training their own guys, which is what we're trying to do, in, in be able to minister to the, to the mercy ministry needs of their church, not necessarily relying on the government stuff, and, and doing, being a lot more self-sustaining rather than what we've been in the habit of all of us is, has been is, is we... Uh, we, we outsource and let somebody else do all that work. Well, we'll have to just take on board the things that the church has done for centuries, and we'll have, we'll have to do it ourselves. So, I mean, that's maybe not specific enough. I don't know if that's a good enough answer, but I'm running out of time, so you, you can ask me more on that one. Um, I think I've got to stop because I see a lot of people in the foyer wanting to get in here. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bring an awakening to Canada and that you would start in this place at this time amongst our souls right now, that you would do that. We believe you're able to. We ask that you would start today by turning us away from sin and toward you. Do what we pray for. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.